Thanks once again for queuing up Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, it is Primary Source Monday, which means that the podcast today consists of me reading something important that was written or spoken by someone who was directly involved in the history of the Beaver State. Right now, we're in the middle of going through the oral histories collected and written up by the writers of the Works Progress Administration's Oregon Folklore Project during the Great Depression. These interviews follow a loose template. The writers, usually Sarah B. Wren, Walker Winslow, Claire Churchill, or Andrew Sherbert, but there were a few others as well, have to answer a series of questions about the interviewee on the cover pages, along with the name and address of the person. I'll be reading those pages before we start as a sort of header on the oral history. The WPA, as you probably know, was a New Deal agency created by the government of Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s to combat the Great Depression. The idea was that rather than lazily pumping money into the economy by bailing out failing banks and propping up failing businesses like certain other administrations have done throughout the years since, we'd get something for it by putting the money in the hands of people who would spend every penny of it patronizing businesses and pumping up the economy. And whether or not that worked is for the political podcasters to wrangle about, but I don't mind telling you that I approve of the philosophy, not least of all because it sure yielded some good Oregon history stuff, stories that would have disappeared entirely if they hadn't. This is one of those stories. So let's get to it. On April 25th, 1938, on a vacant lot near Council Crest in Portland, a writer named Andrew C. Sherbert met up with an old prospector and former sea captain by the name of W. H. Hembry to talk about old-time gold mining. Sherbert described Captain Hembry as, A typical prospector carries samples of ore and magnifying lens in pocket of his Mackinac, hopes to hit it rich next time out. Hembry was a short, stocky, extremely rugged-looking man, all of seventy-four years old, but with the appearance of great physical capabilities for one his age, Sherbert writes. Hembry was there to tell Sherbert his version of the story Oregon gold miners love more than any other, the Blue Bucket Mine. Born in Monmouth on October 7, 1864, Hembry had left his hometown when he was just 13 years old and proceeded to rove all over the states of Oregon and Washington for some time. And then he went to sea, where he must have risen through the ranks, or... Maybe he just took to calling himself Captain the way old Southern men used to call themselves Colonel. It isn't very clear. He had been a shingle maker, a sailor, a fireman, and now, of course, a prospector, working on a gold mining claim near Estacada. Or, <laughs> Estacada, as the uninitiated sometimes pronounce it on radio shows, much to the amusement and delight of the locals. Now, this is what he had to say. <clears throat> I was born in Monmouth, Polk County, Oregon, October 7th, 1864, and was christened William Harry Hembry. My father's name was Houston Hembry. He was named for the illustrious Sam Houston and was born in Texas, though his family later moved to Missouri. My mother's name was Amanda Bowman, and she was born in Iowa, coming to Oregon in 1848. My father left Missouri for Oregon as one of the first wagon trains of the great migration of the 1840s, arriving in the Willamette Valley sometime in 1843. 
The train that my father came to Oregon with is said to have been the first wheels over to make the entire journey from the east to the Dells. The wagon train of which my father and his kinfolks were members was more fortunate than the parties which followed the old Oregon Trail in the years immediately after. The Indians did not trouble the earlier emigrants, were friendly, in fact, according to accounts given me by my father. It was not until the later emigrants come through that the Indians begun to attack travelers in 1844 and 45 and thereafter. Father's train arrived at the Dells with exactly the same number of members it had when it left Missouri. There have been, however, a death and a birth en route, both occurring simultaneously at a place now called Liberty Rock, Idaho. The one who died was a second cousin of mine whose name I have forgotten. The child that was born was my aunt, Nancy Hembry. Though there had been gold stampedes, land grants from the government, and all sorts of empire-building activities in Oregon after my father arrived from the east, he had not yet struck it rich when I squalled onto the scene ten years later. When I am asked to recall incidents of my early life and to describe games we played in my childhood, I can't truthfully answer that there was no childhood in the sense meant. There were no games. All I remember about my childhood is work, work, and work. Work long before the sun come up. Work long after the sun had set. When I was eight years old, I was doing real labor. Labor that today would draw a man's wages. Union working hours, sit-down strikes. Such things were not dreamed of then. My father and older brothers used to make shingles every day in the week except Sunday. They'd make them by hand, riving them out of cedar bolts with a tool called a fro. If you've ever seen one, a fro is a steel wedge-shaped cleaver-like blade with a sharp edge and a handle set at right angles to one end of the blade. You hit the fro with a mallet, driving it through the shingle bolt, cleaving the bolt with the grain of the wood. Only the best, the very best, straight-grained cedar was used for these shingles. The manufactured shingles of today have a useful life of about ten years or so, but I'm willing to wager that some of the shingles my family made, if there was any possible way of identifying them, are still giving service somewhere in Oregon. They were made to be practically everlasting. At the tender age of eight years, I worked right along with the rest of the men in the family. Being the youngest, my job was to keep the shavings all raked up into piles and to bundle the shingles as fast as my father and brothers made them. And that was no easy job for a youngster so small, for they contrived to fashion a surprisingly large number of shingles every day, and the piles of shavings grow prodigiously large as the day wore on. No sooner would I arrange and tie one bundle of shingles than it seemed another one was ready to tie. We used to work well on into the evening. That's when the piles of shavings were put to use. I'd set fire to the shavings piles one after another as each burned out and worked by the light of these pungent fires. It was not at all unusual for us to work 14 or 16 hours from the time we started in the morning until we'd go up and call it a day. I was always a pretty tired youngster when I had tied off the last bundle and was mighty glad when my father would say, All right, boys, let's put out the fire. I worked along with the family, riving shingles till I was twelve, thirteen years old, when I began to work out for others. The boys in those days seemed to mature earlier than they do now. As soon as a lad had a sign of fuzz on his cheek, he was considered a man and expected to fill any place a man could. I was no exception. At fifteen, I was riding the range. At seventeen, I'd been pretty much all over the great plains of central and eastern Oregon. 
As I said before, we worked every day but Sunday, and except for chores, Sunday really was a day of rest, and a very welcome one. The day was really a quiet and holy day in those times. My family was not what one would consider overmuch pious or religious for those times, but it seemed that every family embraced some sort of faith. God did not seem so far away as he does today. He seemed mighty close to us. We seemed to see evidence of his works all around us and were mighty awed by his power. I noticed that folks in general don't have that sort of religious consciousness in them of late years. Our home was typical of a pioneer Oregon family. Mother made homespun. I can see her at the spinning wheel treading out the yarn that was going to the things that we would be wearing a few months later. Today, women of the age she was then used the same toe my mother used on the treadle to step on the accelerator as they drive to a department store for machine-made cloth and ready-made garments. Our work clothes and shirts and pants were usually made of home-tanned buckskin. This stuff wore like iron, and though it was not very beautiful to look at, it was extremely serviceable. When a man, and I mean by that any male person over sixteen or thereabouts, was able to accumulate the required number of dollars, one of his most important investments would be a Sunday go-to-meeting outfit made by Eastern tailors and consisting of a swallowtail coat and a fancy light-colored vest and a strappy pair of pants. He would top this elegant attire with a high beaver hat. He was then ready for and considered properly dressed to be acceptable in the most dignified and formal gathering or social function. After a good deal of wandering about, mostly within Oregon's boundaries, I come to Portland and got a job on Portland's paid fire department. The fire department personnel at that time comprised both paid and volunteer firemen. I stayed with the department for about three years, making an excellent record as a fireman, and then I went to sea as a sailor. I liked the seafaring life very much, and my travels took me to many foreign ports, where I saw a great deal to interest a young man of my active and curious disposition, but I hadn't quite forgotten the thrill and excitement that went with fighting fires. So I returned to Portland, and because I left a good service record behind me when I quit the department previously, I was immediately placed on the roster and became once more a fireman. Another few years as a fireman in the sea beckoned, and I returned to walk the caulked planks of a ship's deck. A couple of years at sea, and I found myself again yearning for the prancing fire horse and clanging gong, back to the fire department where I served during Mayor Simon's administration, finally quitting and never again returning because of disgust with political wrangling going on within the department's ranks. I then worked on riverboats in various capacities where I earned the courtesy title of Captain I have no papers, however. In between other activities, even as a young man, I was interested in gold mining. I have prospected in the past 50 years in almost every section of Oregon where gold has been or appeared that it might be found. I have panned every river and creek in the state where I thought there was a remote possibility of making worthwhile findings. In recent years, I've operated small mines with more or less success. I'm at present beginning the operation of a mine in Clackamas County near the Marion County line. The sample assay looks good, in spite of the many former disappointments in similar enterprises, I have every hope that this one will turn out prosperously. However, if it doesn't, I shall promptly find another likely-looking hole in the ground, and with a true prospector's unquenchable optimism, my hopes will doubtless rise again. 
Perhaps the most widely publicized Oregon gold mine, if there ever was such a mine, is the famous Blue Bucket. I have been erroneously credited with knowing a great deal about this mysterious lost mine. As a matter of fact, in common with many other persons, I have been tremendously interested in the historic Blue Bucket, have gathered a considerable amount of data concerning it, and have journeyed to the region where it was supposed to have been located. I might even go so far as to say that I am satisfied in my own mind that I have been to within a few furlongs of the actual spot where it was. However, until the elusive blue bucket is actually and indisputably recovered, one man's story is good as any other's. Well, here's mine. The blue bucket got its name from the fact that a wagon train, which is supposed to have stumbled onto that rich gold deposit, was made up of a string of wagons, the bodies of which was painted blue. In those days, wagons had no hub nuts to hold a wheel in place on the axle. Wheels were held on the axle by what was called a lynch pin, which was merely a, a pin or a bolt that slipped through a hole on the axle on the outside of the hub of the wheel. Between the hub and the pin was a washer which rubbed on the rim, and to prevent wear, it was necessary to constantly daub the axle at the point of friction with tar, which the immigrants carried in buckets, which hung on a hook at the rear of the wagon. The tar buckets on this particular wagon train were also painted blue. The train made a dry camp, no water in sight, one night on a meadow in a valley between two ridges of hills. Needing water for their horses, members of the train set out on foot, each in a different direction, to attempt to locate a small creek or a pond nearby. Each carried one of the blue tar buckets in which to carry water if any were found. One member come upon a wet, cozy spot where it appeared water was near the surface of the ground. He dug down, using the bucket as a spade, and upon raising the bucket, found it filled with wet dirt containing nuggets of gold. And that was how the blue bucket mine was discovered. I was privileged once to see a diary said to have been kept by the man whose name I believe was Warren. The man was a member of the blue bucket train. In the diary, he kept a day-by-day -day log of the train's progress. By a series of calculations, based upon the mileages and directions given in the diary, I was able to reach a position which must have been in the vicinity of the fabulous mine. To further convince me that I actually did find the mine's exact location, in my search I one day stumbled onto a weathered portion of a wagon box, with unmistakable traces of blue paint still visible on its bleached boards. That the wagon box was of the wagon train arrow was evidenced by the fact that it was built like a scow or a flatboat and was caulked with rags, fragments of them still intact. Emigrant wagons were constructed in such manner to permit them to forge streams handily without damaging their contents. Well, there's my story of the blue bucket mine. Many think the mine never existed. I think it did. However, I realize my story would carry far more conviction were I able to exhibit a few buckets of gold taken from it, regardless of the color of the buckets. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. You will find the source materials for this reading, along with tons of other great Writers Project works, online in PDF form from the Library of Congress. That's at loc.gov collections federal hyphen writers hyphen project. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. 
What you've been listening to is one of our Primary Source Monday specials in which we examine the actual words of someone who made history in the Beaver State in the form of oral histories, amateur autobiographies, vintage newspaper articles, and so forth. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at finn at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday morning, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. And until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.